Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Monday, December 5th in the great year 2022. Uh, We are live right now for another Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As you can see, we have the entire all-star panel uh, back together right now, and I could not be more excited. I know Scott just came back from the Mediterranean and somewhere over in uh, uh, Western Europe. Uh, I remember seeing something pinned about him being over in London, uh, flying out of there. So we're grateful you made it back without any problems. Uh, Paul Spencer, Stephanie Allard, uh, Terry Fletcher, Christine Hall. So excited to see you and so excited for all, all of our viewers and listeners. Last week, we had an incredible panel. It was so good that it reached more than 2,600 people. So we are so excited that folks are finding us, that everybody is tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while. So this week, we have a a great episode, um, as we do every week, I think. And this week, we're going to start talking about something right out of the gate called computer-assisted coding. And I want to go ahead and let me, since Scott, this is your first week back, let me go ahead and kick this one first over to you. Talk a little bit about what computer-assisted coding is, and then let's kind of go around the horn and let's get everyone's feedback on what it is that you're seeing. Because some interesting conversations that we've had um, leading up to this live broadcast. So go ahead, Scott. Uh, sure. Well, it's good to be back. And and Sean was right that I was kind of popping around to uh, Greece and the United Kingdom. Uh, but computer-assisted coding is exactly what we think it is, right? It's the use of uh, software tools to help aid in the selection of what is believed, uh, at least, to be the most appropriate code uh, for a specific encounter. Now, one of the things that we're going to discuss uh, during this uh, set during this segment uh, is that uh, you know computers really just are counting what they see. They're really looking for inputs uh, and attempting to help discern uh, the the correct code. And, and you know, I think one of the things that I know I've seen, and and I think the rest of us on this call have seen, uh, are instances or conversations that we've had with providers that we work with where they point to the computer and say, well, I didn't select this code. Uh, the computer selected it. Um, and, and I think we're going to have a live, lively discussion about the fact that the computer uh, really, at least uh, for now in our current state of uh, AI and things like that, really just takes uh, the inputs and produces an output, but isn't necessarily thoughtful about how, how or whether it's appropriate uh, to count certain things. And I'll say personally, uh, you know, from from my perspective, I think we all know on this call that medical necessity is the overarching criterion of, of code selection. 
without regard to volume of documentation that's created. And, and computer-assisted coding uh, is pretty much a volume-centric uh, tool, as I see it, at least. And so, uh, you know, there's really very little, if any, discernment of the medical necessity of the different things that uh, are input into a computer-assisted process. Excellent. So, Terry, let me come to you and let's talk about some of the challenges that you're running into with some of the audits, both from what you're doing at Terry Fletcher Consulting on behalf of providers and then what you're doing as a contractor with some of the payers that you audit for. Well, the one thing that is tough when it comes to the computer assisted coding is think of this, and this is for the listeners and the watchers out there. This is kind of a version of a computer spell check, meaning that you could put in the word your and your or there, there and there. And, you know, we've seen the Friends episode, you know, it's your is Y-O-U-R and you are is Y-O-U possibly R-E. So when you when you use computer assisted coding um, generically, I guess the way to use it, um, you're basically getting, yes, maybe the correct codes, but not in the correct context. And so, for example, uh, one of my specialties is cardiology. Can a computer-assisted coding system pick up a heart cath and an intervention? Yes. Should it always build a heart cath and intervention together? No. So there are scenarios where we're using the same codes uh, for different services. And um, it, it's tough because the computer is only as good, first of all, as what's put in it. But what I'm finding from an auditing perspective is that there's both over and under coding in the orthopedic cardiology pulmonary uh, derm there's a ton of under coding because they're not picking up things that are unbundled per se uh, things that can be coded as long as the correct language is there and why the physician did it um, and then there's overcoding, meaning that it just codes everything it sees. <laughs> it just depends on the software um, one example and then i'll move on to the next person is there's something in the CPT book that is in parentheses and it's called separate procedure. So if you provide a major surgery and then there's also a separate procedure or what they call something that stands alone and it's usually inclusive of the major procedure, it's not supposed to be billed in addition to that other procedure. It's part of that procedure. Um, think of um, arthroscopic, arthroscopic medial meniscectomy and then a diagnostic arthroscopy. Well, those are um, inclusive of each other, right? But what if it's a bilateral knee? What if one you were just scoping and the other one you were actually repairing the, um, the, the uh, meniscus Well, or taking it out? Well, you can bill for both of those, but you'd have to modify it. You'd have to know the scenario. You'd have to see how the um, physician will, will absolutely um, put in the correct language to reflect that. And... I'm not seeing the the CAC systems actually pick that up. So that's undercoding and losing revenue for physicians. There's more on that with some of these incidental procedures that aren't supposed to be billed in a routine scenario, but not everything is routine. And that's where I think that computer-assisted coding has a downfall. So, you know, one of the things that I, I and, and Terry, you made a lot of great salient points as always. You know, one of the things that I picked up on, and I hope our listeners are picking up on it, is that this computer-assisted coding is not just about identifying overpayments, 
right? Unbundling. But it's also an opportunity from a human standpoint to be able to identify missed opportunities for revenue generation. So don't look at this CAC that we're talking about as a complete derogatory and that it is a total risk mitigation from a fraud, waste, and abuse standpoint. It's a risk mitigation also from a loss of financial revenue standpoint. So, Paul, are there other examples of things that people should be aware of when, let's just say, uh, you're auditing surgical reports? Are there things that they should be looking for that are typically unbundled or exploded that should be, you know, you know, not billed separately or uh, if they are extensive, are there things that should be carved out, I guess is where I'm going with that. Well, one of my favorite topics when it comes to surgical documentation is the modifier 22. And playing off of uh, Terry's point with regard to separate procedure, probably the most common modifier 22 situation that I've come across in the past has been uh, lysis of adhesions that are extensive in the case of a laparoscopic uh, cholecystectomy, where that's, you know, lysis of adhesions to get to the gallbladder is standard, but if it's taking much more time than the standard based on the patient's body habitus or uh, just the extent of the adhesions, you know, the way that's documented, if all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, could lead to a 22 modifier situation. And that's when you can add it. Uh, you know, the, the one issue that I have with computer-assisted anything, uh, and we see it a lot with self-driving cars uh, like the Tesla that drove through the Columbus Convention Center at 76 miles an hour, is that uh, it's only as good as the input that it receives, and it only works if everybody's on the same system. If you can find five doctors, uh, particularly five surgeons who document a surgical encounter in the same way uh, that computer-assisted coding would be of assistance, I would love to see it because every single physician that I've ever known has their different ways of expressing basically the same thought. And that's where the problems come into play. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So Stephanie, let me, let me come to you because you are, you're an auditor, right? And like the other you know, subject matter experts that are joining us on this panel, you know, you all are at the top of your food chain, you know, at the top of the food chain, you're, you're the best of the best. You know, for me, I consider you all to be in the top 1% of folks that do this kind of work. Can you talk about a coder's role, you know, when it comes to computer assisted coding, how critical is it for them to engage in the process for them to ensure that they're in the top one percent of what they do that they are uh, uh the best of the best of this. so i think it's important to realize first if there is a coder this isn't something where we put it on cruise control our life's easy we become more charge entry um, this is something where we have to truly understand how that system's working, how the information's being applied. Um, the way that I've actually personally seen it with my clients is they don't have coders. So they're using this particular EMR and software system to act in place of a coder. Um, 
what I've found with that, I found a lot of different things, but when I do, I, I think I've mentioned before, I always like to do a kickoff call with clients before starting so I can understand workflow in the office, um, what it is they have going on, concerns. And one of the main conversations we have during that call is what EMR system do you use? And as soon as I hear particular names, which I'm not going to call them out here, but as soon as I hear particular names, the first thing I ask them for when they send me the data to audit, I want to see the billing sheet from that system that breaks out everything and how it's calculating the EM services. Um, one of the things I found in a large dermatology practice, there was a lot of undercoding. And what ended up happening when we you know, talked about the results afterwards, I said, okay, well, who's, who's playing into this output? And it came, it came to be that the clinical staff was entering history information into the HPI, which was driving the way the presenting problem was being inserted. And they had no idea about coding concepts and how we apply column one of 2021 guidelines. So it resulted in extreme undercoding. Um, another scenario hey, that Stephanie, I had. Stephanie, yeah. real quick, before you go any further, I know this is not a webinar. This is not you know, we're not teaching coding, but when for, for somebody like me, can you help me understand what you're talking about with column one of the coding guidelines for 2021? Just so I'm on the same page and all of our viewers and listeners are on the same page, please. Yep. So, and actually I'll, I'll give examples. What I ended up doing with that particular client is having an entire education session with clinical staff which I can tell you they really weren't happy about because they felt that they're completely hands-off. But the way the EMR is built, there's no choice but to go through the process. So what we talked about was the differences between acute and chronic conditions based on the coding guidelines and how we look at acute complicated or chronic exacerbated. Even when we think about chronic conditions and the fact that a moderate level presenting problem is two or more stable chronic conditions, they had no idea about any of it. So we had to go back to step one and really heavily hash out column column one um, so that they would start inputting information correctly. Got it. Um, go now, the, the last scenario I wanted to bring up, I find interesting because to me, you know, obviously it's not just auditing. We don't just put blinders on and validate codes. We're looking at compliance risk in general. Um, one of the things I found very concerning was with an orthopedic group. And with this particular, again, the same EMR system, it was built from the very beginning to give a higher level of credit for a particular drug that's used for a joint injection or a particular category of drugs. And it was really problematic because any time that drug was injected, it was billing it as a level four, saying that that was moderate risk even though it was still a minor procedure and the provider had identified no risk factors at all. Um, what the system was doing is it was breaking out the fact that a, a minor procedure had a drug included that was injected and it was giving credit for just the drug as opposed to counting it inherently as a part of the minor procedure. Um, 
when I talked to the client about this, we really dug into the fact that, you know, CMS's NCCI uh, manual still states that minor versus major procedures are determined by that global period. So we weren't up into a 90-day global where we could give that particular explanation. And it also didn't support prescription drug management. So the outcome was a lot of overcoding that was happening. And then something else that was even more concerning, if you're looking at giving credit for the drug separate from a minor procedure, there were also issues with billing an E&M on the same day with recurring injections. Um, when I explained everything to the client and showed them some of the different information, as much as I could from CMS, because obviously some of this we have to go between the lines and piece together, um, the response from their vendor was that they didn't want to change it, they didn't believe anything being said, and they wanted written proof in black and white that that's what needed um, to be changed. My out my um, takeaway from that was really that the EMR was going to have to change it across the board for all of their clients. Um, I'm not sure, I don't have confirmation on that, but I don't understand why if their client's coming to them and saying, I don't feel comfortable with this, this is a higher compliance risk than I'm willing to take, why they wouldn't just update that for them as their client. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, we have to dig in and, and look behind the scenes when, when people are using these uh, CAC systems. Yep. Such, such great information. Christine, I want to come to you because I want to pick up where Stephanie left off because I, I think some of what she said is, well, not some, but the last part of what Stephanie mm -hmm. was talking about with going to the vendor and saying, listen, there's a problem. OK, there's there's a there's a documented problem in the system. It is creating a compliance risk for our organization that we do not feel comfortable about. But what do you do, Christine, in a situation where an EMR vendor is pushing back and saying, well, put it in writing, document it, send us all this stuff and we'll take it under advisement and we'll let you know. What do you what do you do if you're an organization that's dealing with that and you're not, well, it's, you know, it's uh, even and, worse. you know, uh, uh, go ahead, go ahead. It's even worse, Sean. Um, I have this exact scenario that is happening and has been happening over the last two years with uh, regards to the E&M changes. So the EMR company entered in ordered labs, check, not ordered what labs, not ordered what's the medical necessity for the lab? No, just order labs, check. And when I went back and said, look, I don't know if you're ordering a lab for bubonic plague. I don't know what, you know, what are you doing here? And well, that's the way that the EMR is. And if the EMR company designed it that way, well, it must be compliant. Why would they sell a product, of course, that wasn't compliant? Uh, and they went back to the EMR company who advised them that they couldn't make that type of a change. They couldn't expand that. All they could give them was a free text box. And the provider said, if I'm ordering a whole panel of tests, we don't time to, to free write all of that information in there. So that's the way it is. Um, so we agreed to, to not count data because there was no way to quantify or to qualify that data as being medically necessary and relevant when the, the documentation is only going to say that we ordered labs. Right. But but that ties but that ties back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, does it not, Christine, with the fact Absolutely. that this could be driving down reimbursements for the right. practice. So it's 
it's creating a, a financial loss for an organization. Absolutely. Let, Absolutely. Let me, and, let me, and I found let, another EMR, yeah, Sean, that um, when the providers started to give pushback on the use of modifier 25 and the diagnosis that's associated with the procedure, the EMR allowed them to report the same diagnosis code twice. And it will export one of the diagnoses for the procedure and the same diagnosis code reported the second time, it exports that out towards an ENM to try to support a 25 that is not supported at all. It's not significant enough for it. And the computer assist is picking up any diagnosis, whether it be dry skin and the plan of care is reassurance, that is a 99212 with a modifier 25. And I keep explaining to them that that's not significant. In my eyes, I see significant as we're putting in a plan of care or we're changing a plan of care. Otherwise, right. isn't that just going, yeah, that's that's an ugly lesion or yeah, that's a that's a bad sniffle you got or right? Like I don't get that. So yeah. the EMRs are also trying to find ways around and because these providers have this dogmatic approach to the EMR, they're not willing to see the risk that really is there or the lost opportunity, lost revenue. So let me, Terry, I'm going to, I'm going to come to you right now because I wanted to pose this question. Um, is part of the unwillingness on the part of an EMR company based on the fact that they know they have these healthcare organizations by the shoestrings. And what I mean by that is the cost of data migration from one EMR to another, the, the hassle of switching an EMR, having to build new templates, having to learn a new system, all of these things. Do you think that plays into the... EMR to a degree, the company's unwillingness to say nothing we can do about that. Because as far as I'm concerned, because we have been official consultants for EMR companies, I'm not going to name who they are, but we have been the official consultants for these EMR companies. And when we have made recommendations, we've gotten some pushback and I explained to them, it's source code. Go in and change the source code. You, you know, you're, it, it's like looking at a spreadsheet, right, on Excel. You know, your and, ifs, or ors, put those in there. But let me come to you, Terry, and then, Paul, I want to come to you because I want to talk about something that was brought up by another panel member a moment ago regarding the NCCI edits. So hang tight on that. Uh, Terry, let me, let me turn it over to you. So you bring up some good points. And one of the things that we I've done with some of my clients, and I have a really, I have a couple of really big clients, really big hospital systems. One has over 250 physicians. And luckily for me, I, I kind of kind of be a little bit arrogant here. Luckily for them, they listen to what I tell them. But one of the things that uh, has come up is the EMR situation. And what we did is, is this happened. And they said, you know, well, they're pushing us back saying that they don't have to create new templates for 2023 
that, you know, we're going to have to pay all this money to do that. We didn't have to create templates for 2021. Um, you, they can just um, work around what they already have, et cetera. So a couple of physicians got audited, which I actually knew they would because of just because I audit them on a regular basis. And I was saying, you know, you don't you want to don't want to continue this. You're such a big practice in a system. And unfortunately, one didn't listen, one did, and one passed, the one that listened, and one didn't. And so the the um, payer came in and I said, okay, so here's what we're going to say to the EMR. I said, we're going to obviously system or uh, healthcare entities like that have uh, a legal team. I said, we're going to now hold them responsible. We're going to have them sign a paper saying if they're not willing to edit, modify, or change what's been recommended by your external consultant, then they're not going to be legal, legally responsible in addition to the provider. And we had this whole thing written up and boy, were they ready to change things quick. It was just like, oh, okay, let me, uh, let us see, let's see what we're going to do. So as soon as you throw that at them, that's a really big deal. Whether you can enforce it or not, I don't know, but we wanted to, to definitely go down that route because I, I'm tired of telling physicians, you know, whatever business risk you choose to take is entirely up to you. It isn't because now it, it falls on the staff that could lose their job. It falls on, you know, the integrity of the entire practice. Um, I audit for payers, as, as many of you know, and payers, even the MAC payers, they will look at something and they now extrapolate. So they say, well, we found it in 3% of what you do. So you probably did it, you know, um, practice wide. And we're going to take back this money, not only for the individual physician who was in trouble because they have their own provider number, but also we're going to find the practice for not having a compliance program. There you go, Christine. I didn't say plan. So it's just, you, you have to, you have to throw it back into EMR, into the, the practice is you have to do this. This is a mandate. But before you move on to Paul real quick, one of the things I wanted to mention as well is that, and this is, this is where I'm stuck, especially not with, not just with 2021 rules, but now heading into 2023. Something that AMA overlooked that is causing all kinds of problems. And I don't know if they overlooked it on purpose or if they're just opening the door for audits. I don't know why they did this. But saying in the language that all you have to have is a medically appropriate exam without having any standard of what that exam is gives no direction to physicians. We all hate the 95 and 97 guidelines because there's so much cut and pasting. It's, it's such a templated information and so much is a waste. But one thing you liked about it, at least you knew what you had to have. I mean, from an auditing perspective, you're like, okay, check, check, check. But now it's it's based on opinion. And I think, I don't know if it was Paul or Scott, but like, like they said, you know, doctors have different ways of saying the same thing. But if you don't have a standard in that particular element, just of ENM, I know we were also talking about surgical uh, CAC systems you're going to have a mess because there's no way to, to basically acknowledge the fact that this isn't correct. And they'll be like, well, why not? This doctor documents it this way. This one documents it this way. You pass this doctor, but not me on their audit. So this is a problem for me because the ambiguity of what has to be documented is just, it's not that it's just terrible. It's just not clear. And that's a, a big problem. Yeah. Scott, I I'm wanted to jump in real minute. quick. Sorry. Yeah. Terry. Go ahead, so the, there's another thing that I've been, this is not about the, the ENM guidelines, but there's another thing that I've been kind of battling with is in that description that they're giving us in those guidelines for a stable condition. 
which can go one or two ways. I mean, I, I've argued with providers that dry skin is a stable, is a, is a chronic condition. Is it really though? And when I went into the CDC to take a look at what their definition was, it brought, it had the exact same verbiage until the very end of the stable chronic illness. And then it also said that requires ongoing medical attention or limits activities of daily living. I think that that's a good way to explain to them that it's not just dry skin. You're going to have the rest of your life. You just happen to come in today and mention it. Right. I, I saw that too. And I actually brought that into a discussion with a provider <laughs> who was coding flatline level fours. I'm like, okay, let's go back. It's not just at goal. We're not just talking about hypertension. We're also right. talking about today and what's going to happen just in the future as far as when they, you send them on their way after the treatment. So yeah, yeah. same thing. Yep. So Paul, let me... Great points, Christine and Terry. Paul, let me come back to you because we started to talk about something a little while ago and the term NCCI came up, right? When we were talking about bundling. Talk about some of the misses on NCCI when it comes to how it incorporates into one of these CACs. Well, I mean, you know, the, the most important thing to remember is that uh, this has been around now for 26 years. It shouldn't be sneaking up on any uh, provider of any specialty that there are NCCI edits and there are certain things that are uh, inclusive of other procedures, even though generally that list tends to shift every quarter in little small ways that, uh, that uh, you know, maybe or see changes to what's gone on before and maybe sometimes based on coding changes you know they're a little more voluminous than the last quarter uh but you know as far as ncci edits i mean uh, you know you know it, from the time that i became a certified coder almost a quarter century ago i was told the 59 modifier is one of the most problematic modifiers out there and it's a matter of you know, trying to make a determination as to whether this is clearly a distinct procedural service based on what is being performed, based on the definition of that CPT code. There are a number of different ways that a 59 modifier can be added. They're all, you know, and we also have uh, one of the bigger issues that we have is that the baseline procedural data, uh, as far as what is included with each individual CPT code is really behind an, a, an AMA firewall as to every single specific step that's behind that. The only way we've seen any of that uh, in front of that firewall is when there have been studies done by uh, institutions like the RAND Corporation or the Urban Institute that begins to take a look at the value of things such as post-operative care mm -hmm. as part of the entire uh, allowance for a CPT code. So not allowing a coder to see exactly what is included step by step by step in each procedure code complicates coding already. And then you're going to add another layer of throwing that to a computer who doesn't have the ability of reason and doesn't have the ability of uh, human intervention to try and break that out. Uh, you know, that's a tall order. You know, it's a tall order for a well-trained coder. Uh, and that's, you know, I, 
I don't want to get into a, a tangent about what constitutes a well-trained coder in 2022. Uh, I feel it's somewhat different from, uh, you know, my my time way back in 19, boom, 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 when I started in this. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a co topic of conversation that needs to come front and center immediately. Yeah, I agree. Scott, let me let me come to you because Terry brought up a, a point about the medically appropriate examinations. Right. And I think it's there's actually two parts. Right. One is they changed the examinate at the history, and second was the examination. So let's look at both of those in tandem. Because, D, and this is just an opinion question, right? But I, I want to think about the level of input that CMS and commercial insurance companies have with the American Medical Association, right? Do you think at any point that it's possible? CMS and or the commercial payers provided feedback to the American Medical Association to be able to say something along the lines of, we're trying to get away from the specificity of elements required from an HPI, an ROS, a PFSH, and then the examination, either 95 or 97. Keep, them sub keep it subjective and then allow us as the payers because none of us submit claims to the ama for reimbursement right so the payers said leave it to us to create either medical coverage policies local coverage determinations ncds at you know the 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 medicare you know mothership level to then be able to say there's a high rate of subjectivity to what constitutes a medically appropriate or reasonable history and exam we disagree with the two sentences, doctor or nurse practitioner that you have written, thus, we're going to downcode your level of service and we're going to claw back some of that money. Do you think that's a possibility? Because you've been a, listen, a lot of folks may not know this. Scott Kraft was an award-winning journalist in healthcare for many years before he transitioned over to the, uh, the resistance. And, uh, you know, became an auditor coder. So with some of your journalistic, you know, and in, in interviewing and investigative background, do you think some of that's possible or am I just being a conspiracy theorist? As I like to say, I, I used to be a journalist and then I decided I like to be able to afford food. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, I think that's a very good point. And, um, you know, one of the ways that I explained it once, well, I'll back up for just a second. As a non-clinician, when these guidelines first came out, the first thing I thought to myself was, you know, I'm going to have a heck of a time going into a doctor and telling him or her that, you know, what he or she examined was not necessary for this specific case. Just a conversation I never want to have. And I've told the story before about the gastroenterologist I worked with under the old guidelines who documented an eight system exam template and omitted GI. Uh, because he felt like in doing so, it made it meant he would have to change his exam less often because that was his primary area of focus. Um, and so we have these peripheral examples of what I think we could agree is not a medically necessary exam. So if a provider does no exam, but has a clearly acute patient, I mean, I think that's a little bit easier, right? Because if the patient's coming in to discuss treatment options for an already established diagnosis, maybe an exam is not necessary. 
But I do think that subjectivity allows the payer to come in and say, I think you did too little. Or here's an example where the one thing I thought about was I think you did too much. So let's say hypothetically, I'm the doctor and I'm documenting my encounters based on time. And I'm saying I spent 30 minutes with the patient in accordance with the 2021 guidelines. I'm explaining that I spent that time, you know, performing history, performing exam, documenting in the medical record, uh, adjusting medications, ordering labs, whatever I did. And then the payer comes behind me and says, well, this patient has otitis media and you did a head to toe exam. And I feel like that was a not necessary use of your time. Uh, you know, you didn't need to do that. So you spent extra time uh, than what you might have needed. And we are going to downcode you uh, as a result. And, and so I think it definitely leaves the door open to those kinds of discussions, uh, you know, and it puts the payer, or excuse me, it puts the provider in a in a situation where how many levels are you going to fight some of these clawbacks around this area of subjectivity? But I know the big area I thought about was, okay, if I'm coding based on time, it's sort of wide open for the payer to pluck out aspects of the history and exam and say, well, why did you do that when this was what the patient's chief complaint was? Why did you do that uh, when this was the diagnosis? Why did you review you know, PSA is going back to 2016, you know, when they're all, when they all appear to be roughly the same. So it's, it leaves open a lot of things um, that, I, that, you know, specific to history and exam, it, it, you know, part of me would have even have liked them to say something like uh, medically subject or, you know, medically appropriate exam, uh, inclusive of um, uh, body areas or, or um, uh, areas that are pertinent to the presenting problem. I mean, that is still subjective, but it at least starts to lay a framework. I think the last part I'll say on this, we had been leery of payers coming behind these guidelines and saying, well, we think a medically appropriate exam is this. We think a medically appropriate exam is this. Have not seen a lot of that, but it makes me nervous because I think it creates a world where suddenly you have providers trying to document under multiple different systems. Such 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 great insight on that. I I, I agree. I, I I couldn't find something that I could disagree with or expound on. Christine, you know, I, I always hear providers, you know, staying on topic with what Scott was talking about. And then I want to transition sort of over to the 2023 guidelines with you, Terry. You know, providers always saying to me, listen, irrespective of the reason why the patient came into my office, I always do a head to toe examination. <laughs> And I always gather a comprehensive history because it's just good medicine. Well, it may be good medicine, but if you're doing it because it's good medicine and it's not medically indicated for the presenting problem, why are you billing it at a level four or a level five every single time? I mean, any I, thoughts about that? Well, I, I share Scott's thoughts and I'm so glad that he said that. Um, I think that when providers are selecting time, we're going to have a problem with that physical exam. We're going to have a problem with even the HPI or the lack of HPI, for, for example. Um, again, th those components are so necessary. And I still see providers utilizing old templates, checking off all the boxes, and they're leaving themselves vulnerable to a payer coming in and saying, why did you do a complete review of systems? It was a splinter. 
Why did you do a complete head to toe physical exam? Pap smear, rectal exam. It was a splinter. It's, it may be what you consider to be good medicine, but that's not what the patient came in for. That's not the needs that were, were needed to be addressed at this visit. It's not what we need to pay for from a payer's perspective. I have to say, if I were the patient and I came in with a splinter and got a rectal exam, I would certainly have questions before it even got to the pair. <laughs> you and me. Well, both. I mean, listen, you know, you could have you could have slipped and and landed on a you know a piece of you know uh, two I, by eight or something like that. I you would know, hope it was in the HPI. But I, I yes, I would want it to be in the HPI. I agree. <laughs> let me let me before we go. Let me before let me transition quickly before I drive the bus off the rails. Terry, get us back onto the road. Uh, let's talk about the uh, issues going on with the guidance between office versus hospital or facility. What's going on here? Well, okay, so this is a good one. Um, Christine talked about it a little bit in one of her uh, webinars. I talked about it in three webinars I've already given on 2023 ENM services. We have a, a we have a problem <laughs> because, and I'm going to call it a problem because I'm getting a lot of feedback from coders once they hear a presentation. They're saying, "Oh no, I interpret it this way," and they're going to get in trouble. And I'm just like, "Please, please don't do that." I said, "You you need to read between the lines." And I think a lot of times. Um, coders, this isn't to discount anybody listening or anything like that. I think you want to believe you want to believe it's this way. And I, trust me, so do I. And I think there's a reason that everything happens with AMA and why they're in coats or in collaboration. You see how I said that uh, with uh, CMS is because follow the money. It's, this has to do about reimbursement. Just think shared visits. This has to do about money. So in, in my opinion, so one of the things and getting us back on track is there's something that is different from a new versus established patient in the office. We know that has to be a three-year rule. You know, have you seen the patient within the last three years? But in the office setting or outpatient or office setting, it says same specialty, same group practice, or I should say same exact specialty, same group practice. Um, and that, that way it gives you a little bit of... Um, I don't want to say leeway, but I guess flexibility for some subspecialties, subspecialties. So when it comes to, let's say, cardiology versus EP, so an electrophysiologist, they're technically, could they do on a different day? Could they do a, a, a new patient visit if they referred to the other physician? Maybe. Um, some payers won't pay for it on the same date, um, but if they are not transferring them or referring them for a procedure saying, you need to see this doctor for a pacemaker, then yes, you need to see this doctor because we found arrhythmia and they need to work you up, et cetera. So it depends on the transfer. But the hospital 2023 rules is, is really interesting. So what it used to be, or I should say what it is now, is that as a patient gets admitted by a provider, we bill with an AI modifier, admit inpatient. That's what that modifier is for. That provider calls an, a specialist to come see the patient. That provider then can also code an initial hospital visit without the modifier. And that's supposed to, you know, designate that they're both seeing them on that initial encounter in the hospital. Now in 2023, that isn't the way it works anymore. In 2023, if the initial physician sees a patient and if they, a specialist or another physician from the same practice or a subspecialist, they even added that from the same group practice sees a patient, 
you now have to use the subsequent hospital because they say during the same stay. So, and that's where I think people are trying to equate new and established in the office, the same as in the hospital. But remember, hospital visits are for new and established, that there's no designation on that. And so it also says something about if a consultation is performed in anticipation of or related to an admission by another physician or another qualified healthcare professional, and then the same consultant performs an encounter once the patient's admitted by that other provider, it says report the, consult the consultant's in initial encounter with the appropriate subsequent care codes. Well, they don't give us a timeline. So how far back are they going to actually look on that anticipatory consult? So now you could, I could see a payer having a window here and saying, well, you know, we, you, you saw the patient three months ago. And so now the patient's being admitted and now you're going to see them again. That's still subsequent because you still know who that patient is. And this is going to be a problem. So in, in my opinion, I think that there's, there's so much gray area, but coders that you're out there, coders, billers, administrators, do not get confused with new and established office and outpatient versus hospital stay in the facility side, because that's different. It's during that stay that they're, that they have, and I shouldn't say they're trying, they're going to in 2023, downcode the physician that comes in on the back end. They're not going to be able to build the initial yep. hospital if they belong to the same practice or if they are um, a subspecialist. So, Stephanie, I want to come to you real quick. And before I ask my question, I put up something here from Shoa Rodriguez. And it talks about the fact that CMS's final rule states that they will continue to follow rule for consulting providers seeing patients in observation status. They should report OOVEM. This is confusing. It's confusing. Any thoughts that you may have to help clarify this a little bit or to take away some of the confusion that, because I'm sure if Sheila is feeling this confusion, others are having the same level of confusion or frustration. Any thoughts? And I'll open that up to the whole panel as well. So I'll go quick. Um, this goes down to, you know, anytime we're teaching base guidelines, we have to remember that what we're looking at from AMA is just the foundation. We have to lay over top of that the payer-specific rules. So if CMS is coming in and saying something like that, then we have to follow CMS because they're the ones reimbursing the claims. Um, I, I personally had a little bit of a freak out moment getting ready for nursing facility, teaching the, the changes in the nursing facility, because I had the whole thought and went down the rabbit hole about how, again, they say they look at whether or not uh, anybody has seen the patient from the same group, same specialty. And in the nursing home, CMS states that if the patient needs to be seen by an NP, for example, for acute purposes prior to the physician doing the actual admission in H&P, there to build the, sub, the um, subsequent code and not the initial. So I had to, you know, kind of read through everything and then take a step back and remember, yes, we have AMA's guidance, but we're going to have to keep paying attention to how CMS and the payers are going to direct us um, when this starts. We're lucky if we have that direction now, but some of it we may not get until next year. Sean, you're on mute. <laughs> we can't hear you. Yeah, we can't hear you, See, Sean. I, I told you I was going to stay on mute. I pressed the button on <laughs> I, I, purpose. I, I, Sorry. Back to you. <laughs> I think I think Terry <laughs> muted me. 
Um, Stephanie, I'll come back to you in a minute. I want to come to you, Christine, real quick, because it's on mm-hmm. my mind. And and I want to kick it off here, and then I want to go to Stephanie and Paul and, and Terry and Scott for their thoughts on this. You, you and your consulting firm, mm-hmm. you provide training and education to mm-hmm. providers, hospitals, health systems, same as Terry, same as Scott, Paul, Stephanie, myself, right? How often do you, in your mind, feel like coders are, or even internal auditors from an organization are agreeing with physicians because they're concerned, not that the provider is right, but that if they disagree with the provider and they didn't speak up about the fact that this was problematic before, that it could result in them losing their job. Or if they did speak up about it in the past and the doctors told them, do it my way or it's the highway, how many of them are now just kind of in that that cycle of agreeing with the providers because that's my paycheck? Yeah, it happens a lot. And I, and I go in and I do a lot of... Um kind of gap analysis in a practice, looking at all of the employees in their roles, their policy procedures. And I often find that, well, this is the way that Dr. So-and-so told us to do it. And he brought in this pamphlet, or he's insistent that that's the way it's going to be. Or she says she's not going to change the way she documents because, and there is that, that fear of, losing my job if I speak up or I'm, I'm too loud or I go against the grain, um, especially in smaller practices where or in areas that it's difficult to even find jobs to begin with. They write my paycheck. That's right, Samantha. And and I see those things a lot. And it, it really st- um, troubles me. And I struggle with those coders to tell them that, you know, listen, I've I've looked at enough of the hot sheets on the DOJ to know that when you know that your provider is doing something wrong, you also can be in just as much trouble if you push that button and sent that claim through. Well, I want to say one thing because you you, you opened the door for me. I don't get many opportunities to, <laughs> oh, Terry, stop. This is a good one. So if we're looking at 42 CFR, which is the Code of Federal Regulations or 42 CFR, and we look at subsection 3729, the section actually starts off by stating any person who willingly and knowingly submits a claim to an insurance company is held liable under the False Claims Act. So, I mean, it's right there. It's in black and white to Terry's point where you have providers who say, show me. Okay. So let me, let me come to. Oh, Terry, I'm coming to you. Okay. So Terry, listen, like me <laughs> and like, or, or I could say like you, right? So I'm, I'm an auditor investigator, if you will, not an auditor, but really an investigator for medical boards here in the country. And a lot of times I'll have somebody, and I want you to put your payer auditor hat on. Okay. I'll have somebody that will come to me during an investigation. And I'll ask them questions about, you know, what prompted you to code things this way? Why do you believe that this was accurate? And, you know, they'll give me, you know, different explanations, what have you. 
I always wind up leading to one question. If you disagreed with the payer's perspective on their medical coverage policy or a local coverage determination, do you have anything in a written policy that says, while we understand the subregulatory guidance issued under a local coverage determination or the best practice medical coverage policy issued by ABC Insurance Company, right. we as clinicians have a different belief clinically. And as such, this is why we're going to do this. And, you know, I, I never find that. If somebody were to say that to you or to produce a policy for, you know, to you, would that change your perspective on the outcome of some of these adverse actions on an audit that you find? It would if it made sense. And I think I first default to certain common sense things. But one of the things I also tell a lot of physicians and providers when they say, well, you know, this says this or this doesn't say this or to your point. I don't agree with what they're saying. And I'm like, well, I don't agree either. But unfortunately, some things we're just the messenger. We have to tell you this is what's written. This is the policy. But I also remind providers, and this is really big, if you truly believe that this is inaccurate, obviously, you need to go to your associations and lobby for it. But a reminder, neither HHS secretary we've had in the last 10 years, none of them have been medical physicians, medical anything. So they're administrators. So if you have medical input, that that can trump what they're saying. And I hate to use that word, but I know what I'm because I know I'll cause trouble. But I just want to make sure that people know that, you know, your physicians have a voice here. They absolutely have a voice, but they have to utilize that voice in having things changed. And if you're just going up against somebody who makes policy, who is not a physician and is telling you as a physician what you can do, yell loudly yell out loudly, say, this is why it should be this way. And this is why I need to do it this way. Otherwise you're being complacent and sitting back. And unfortunately you're going to kind of get what you get. And so I, I do take that to them. The one thing that um, somebody had brought up, who brought up the final rule, Sheila, thank you for that. One thing that's going to be a problem when it comes to um, the inpatient and, and now they call them also observation, which I hate, by the way, I'm just going to say it. I'm a hater. The reason is, is because there's a different acuity in an observation patient versus an inpatient. And now everything's going to have to be based on place of service. So if we go by the final rule that said, well, it's the same observation care, you know, information that we gave you last time, it's like, yeah, but you, you deleted those codes. So we can't use observation care the way we used to. Um, if you're saying use the office or other outpatient visits, that's fine. But the CPT book says you use the code that best describes what you do. And if there's something that says observation care, why are we going back to the outpatient codes when there's a code that says that observation? And AMA is saying this is how you use it. And I realize CPT and um, CMS don't always agree, but that's a sticking point for me because it's going to be reimbursement issue based on, um, you know, your your place of service. And before you leave me, because I know that's probably my last thing, Stephanie, I really like your sweater. Okay, go ahead. All right. I like your sweater too, Stephanie. Um, so Scott, the, the last topic that I want to approach, and it's certainly not the least important of these topics, is what's going on with the data element dumps with medical decision-making. 
You're on mute too, buddy. Now I'm on mute. Uh, before I get into that, I do want to just say one thing quickly on the topic of the coder physician interaction. And, and, you know, when I'm on site, I look at that stuff very carefully. Like how are physicians interacting with coders, auditors, people who work for them? Because, you know, sometimes they listen to me when people in the building have been telling them the same things all along. And, and I think as a physician, if you are stifling you know, code, I don't necessarily want to say dissent, but if you're stifling feedback from people in your office on correct coding and billing um, to the point where they don't feel like they can approach you with something, you're taking quite a compliance risk. And, and you know, I hope for your sake, you're doing everything uh, absolutely correctly, because at some point people will just see things and stop talking to you about it. Uh, and yeah, they will take on some risks in doing that, or they just may leave and not tell you what they see. Um, but that certainly is a risk. But moving on to data. So, uh, the best way I could describe this is is way back when, when I first started doing this, I would have conversations under the old guidelines about past family social medical history, and they might be missing from the note. Uh, and the provider would say, well, it's somewhere else in the EMR. And I'd say, well, I don't know that you reviewed it because it's not in your note. And at some point, we came to this conclusion, how do we know that the provider reviewed something like past family social medical history? And we say, well, it's in the provider's documentation and the provider signed that note and therefore they reviewed it and we live with that. Now, one of my concerns with data, and I, I thought about this in the inpatient setting going back to 2021, but now we're about to pivot into these guidelines is, you know, the EMR drops a mountain of data into inpatient notes. Um, and, and I, you know, I see these, you know, uh, CAT scans from five years ago and, old MRIs and labs. And, and one of the conversations we had in the uh, internally uh, a couple of weeks ago was uh, the case of a cardiologist who was being asked to consult a patient uh, for, I believe it was a possible arrhythmia. And the cardiologist decided he didn't really need to be involved. Uh, but somewhere in that note, there was a CT scan interpretation of the patient's uh, ankle uh, from another injury, uh, and the question was: Are we say are we giving this provider any credit uh, for reviewing this uh, image, even as it is in his documentation, or reviewing this report? Uh, and my concern about inpatient, um, the 2021 guidelines as applied to the patient setting is twofold. I think one, these guidelines make it a little bit more difficult in the manner in which inpatient providers document now to consistently achieve high level services for subsequent patients, because I think the risk of the underlying treatment in a lot of these cases does not exist on a day to day basis. Whereas under the previous guidelines, we kind of look and we say, well, the patient still has a number of conditions. These conditions are still uh, in a certain state. The question then becomes, what do we do with this voluminous amount of data uh, that's sitting in an inpatient note? And how do we credit it? And, and I think there are some easy marks to some easy markers to put down. Uh, if we're talking about, uh, you know, if I'm the provider and I'm seeing the patient uh, today is Monday. So if I've seen the patient on Sunday and Saturday and there's a bunch of labs that are riding along from day to day, uh, we're certainly not going to credit like the, the second and third review of the same piece of data. But how do we differentiate? data that may not be relevant whatsoever to what this specialist is treating, how do we set an expectation that the provider is going to incorporate that data review into his or her uh, documented 
treatment plan? How do we understand what's a logical piece of data to credit? Because my concern is we'll be in a situation where we won't have level threes anymore because we don't have the risk of the treatment plan. The provider's going to pivot to data and say, look, there's, you know, there's a there's a mountain of labs in there. There's a, a there's a bunch of imaging in there or some conversation that's going to happen with another provider every single day. Uh, and I think those are some things that that I've been thoughtful about and, and frankly concerned about with, you know, the bloating of inpatient notes that the provider may not even be intending to review these things, but there they are. Yep. Paul, let me give you the last comment and then we're going to make some uh, final comments about our upcoming shows. Go ahead, buddy. Very briefly. I mean, we all knew that this was coming uh, as far as inpatient uh, documentation looking more like uh, office documentation from a medical necessity standpoint. If your hospital-based CDI teams and your outpatient teams are not talking to one another right now, it may already be too late. You know, get around the table, agree to hash out what a useful piece of documentation is going to look like to Scott's point, what you're going to count, what you're not going to count, what you're going to carry over, what you're not going to carry over, and what is going to count uh, in that uh, in that arena. Uh, CD, CDI and outpatient have got to start talking on this. It's a great point. All right. That's going to take us to the end of this Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. I want to thank my special guests, Christina Hall, Stephanie Allard, Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer, Scott Kraft, and to all of the incredible listeners, viewers out there for engaging. What a great session. Uh, next week will be the final Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable for 2022 because on December 16th, I will be starting my end of the year vacation and will not return back until after January the 2nd. I also want to say to every single one of y'all who has reached out in direct messages, posts on the blog, thank y'all so much for the congratulations on my 10 years at Doctors Management. It has gone by very quickly. Uh, I, I swear I blinked and it was gone. Uh, sometimes I feel like it was just yesterday, but I am reminded every day that when I look in the mirror, it has absolutely been 10 years that have passed. So with that said, Terry and I will be back for one of our last two episodes of the hashtag Terry Tuesday uh, tomorrow, December 6th. Uh, I have stayed in a Holiday Inn Express recently, so I will probably be giving some medical advice. So y'all tune in for that one tomorrow. Until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.